Welcome to the Deepwater Podcast. I'm Dave Mercer. I'm James Judd. And our goal on this podcast is to learn to make disciples the way Jesus made disciples. Yes, sir. Welcome to the Deepwater Podcast. I'm really excited. I've got a great interview for you guys today. Um, today I have with me Tack Buchanan, and uh, I think I told you guys last weekend I went to a prison uh, a prison training. It was a training from the Texas Department of Criminal Justice in order to be a volunteer in the tra- in the prisons and do ministry there. And when I was there, uh, one it freaked me out a little bit all the different stories they told. And two, uh, afterwards, uh, this man, Tack, came up and he just gave just a real quick story about uh, the ministry that he's involved in in prisons. And it sounded it sounded really awesome. It sounded kind of intense. So I met him afterwards. He said he'd love to be a guest on here. I'm excited to have him. Tack, uh, welcome to the Deepwater Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Well, kind of give give us just a little a little spill about yourself, beginning with, you know, what's the organization that you work with? Give us a little bit of your story. Okay, I am the uh, my title is I'm regional coordinator for the Texas Panhandle for the Bridges to Life program, and the Bridges to Life program is a faith based restorative justice program, and mm-hmm. we actually bring in victims of violent crime that get to stand up in front of our uh, classes and give their testimony. It's a 14 week program, mm-hmm. and weeks two, three, five, and seven we bring in victims of violent crime. And as you notice, you went through the TDCJ training process, and part of the video they showed, they tell you to never ask an inmate what he's in for or how long. Mm-hmm. And in the Bridges to Life process, we do that the first night we're there because I'm a true believer that you're not going to get healing from something that you're hiding from. Uh, so mm-hmm. to go through the Bridges to Life program, these offenders, they have to admit what they did. They have to own up to what they did. Mm-hmm. And then... um. By week 10 is the week on forgiveness. They have to write letters to the victims of their crime, which those don't get sent. That would be illegal. But if you're actually putting pen to paper, you're processing through this stuff. And mm-hmm. the, the course of the program, the first seven weeks, we're real big on a, focusing on accountability, responsibility. We really like to open their eyes to the impact that crime has on society, on victims' families, on their families, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's a big strain on their families when their loved ones incarcerated, you know, instead of having two incomes, now it's all on mom or, or uh-huh. vice versa, however uh-huh. it's set up. So, so we really open their eyes to thinking beyond themselves yeah. because a lot of, uh, a lot of people in prison, they view themselves as the victim, you know, victim oh. of the system uh-huh. and they don't really think past themselves or the pain that they're through. So we really open their eyes to the pain that is caused to family, victim family, just all these things they don't, the taxpayers, mm-hmm. just things they don't really think about. And then the second seven weeks of the program, we shift more towards the faith-based side. Every week is based off of scripture, but the second seven weeks, we move past the accountability and responsibility and start moving into, uh, you know, confession, forgiveness, repentance, you know, things, uh-huh. things like that of the biblical nature. And we, we just give them tools so they can change their lives when they get out and, and not come back to prison. Uh-huh. You know, our, uh, Hold on know, one second. Just tell us, before we, before we go into recidivism, recidivism rate, um, let me back up just a little bit. Tell me, how, how did the program get started, and then how are you involved in it? Okay, okay. 
our uh, our program started. Our executive director is a man named John Sage, and uh, he was a, a real estate guy from Houston. And in 1997, I believe it was, his little sister got murdered. These uh, two teenagers, they they were going to steal her car, and she was taking laundry in and out of the house. And they followed her in the house. You know, she had the door open, just walking to the car back and forth. And they just walked right into her house. And instead of instead of just taking her keys and leaving, they wound up killing her. They they stabbed her over ninety times. Wow. And uh, they wound up crushing her skull with a statue. It was it was just a horrible, horrible, senseless crime. And they left her there, and her daughter came home from school and found her mom in in that condition. So I mean, you can just imagine the the trauma that that daughter went through, that everybody in that family went through as a as this crime happened to their family, and it, it really affected it not just affected their whole family, but it really affected John. And uh, he started, you know, not taking care of business, going through depression. And self-medicating, you know, things like that way too much after after this crime was committed against his sister. And there was a program that asked him to come speak at the prison. And it was a victim impact panel. It was a program that they would bring in victims of crime that Mm -hmm. would share their stories. And the next week they would get together and discuss what they heard from the victim the previous week. And I think it was kind of a, hey, we're here to make you feel guilty so you don't commit crimes anymore type uh-huh. of program. Uh-huh. And it didn't last. It didn't work. But while John was there giving his testimony, he saw the impact of telling his story that it had on these offenders that were there. I mean, they were real attentive. They were, you know, crying. He could tell that his sister's death was having an impact on these people that were in the room. So he got together with a man named Kurt Blackard, and they came up with our curriculum. And it's not just to make you feel guilty program. It's a let's open your eyes to the impact crime has and then figure out ways biblically that we can change our lives. Mm-hmm. That's where the repentance and confession and all that stuff comes in. And um, John had a vision that if he could help two or 300 inmates and help a few victims of crime, that all this effort that him and Kurt are putting out would be worth it. Mm-hmm. And that was in 1998, a year after his sister got killed. And we just celebrated our 20-year anniversary. So we've been doing this program for 20 years now. Uh-huh. I've been involved with it for the last seven years. But, you know, John had a vision to help 300 inmates or so. And we just graduated our 46,000th offender through this program. Wow. And that's just in the state of Texas. We've helped hundreds of victims of crime. Ten other states have picked up on our program, Indiana, Washington, Colorado, mm-hmm. uh, Florida, I believe. Uh, other com- countries have picked up on our program. They're doing it in Uganda, South Africa. They're doing it in old Mexico. Mm-hmm. So uh, God's really got his hand on this program, and he had a lot bigger vision than John did to just help <laughs> two or 300 inmates. And yeah. it's, it's, it's just such an amazing program. And yeah, it's as far as am- every program— It's always amazing go when God—I was going to say, it's always amazing when God gets a hold of something— and when it's really, you know, it's like if it's us and our efforts, you know, like oh, I get two or three hundred and that's that's a good effort. But when God mm-hmm. is in charge, it's, you know, often way beyond what we can imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you want to you want me to share a little bit about how I got involved? In yeah, I would, I would love to hear more of that. OK, um, I found out about the program. I was at work one day. I was working for my church running their uh, outreach center and a volunteer of mine said that a, a friend of her 
son just got out of prison and asked if I would talk to him because I've been doing prison ministry for, you know, quite a few years uh-huh. with uh, other ministries. And he came to my office and he told me about the Bridges to Life program. And, you know, I, I used to be in all the all the prison programs I was doing. I, I did what they said at the volunteer training, never asked an inmate what he's in or what he's there for. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, we were, we're just here to show you the love of Christ. We don't care what you did. And this kid's in there saying, yeah, man, you have to own up to your crime. They bring in victims. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, wow, that sounds amazing. So I contacted John Sage. I had a video of me speaking, giving my testimony at a church. And I, I sent it to him. And it was about six months later, he called me back and uh, said, if I could get a program running at the Clements Unit as a volunteer, mm-hmm. that um, we would bring Bridges to Life to the Texas Panhandle. And then uh, he said, if you get one next door at the Neil unit, I'll put you to work part-time. And we did that. And then I just kept adding prisons <laughs> until now I'm a full-time Damn. staff member. I'm a, I'm doing a Clements unit, Neil unit, Tulia unit, Dalhart unit, Jordan unit. Mm-hmm. I mean, just units all over the Texas panhandle. We're working with the youth. We're working with sex offenders now. Uh-huh. You know, God's just opened the door for the first time this year to be able to work with sex offenders. So it's a blessing to be able to, go in there and help those guys realize they can be forgiven and change their lives after they get out of prison. Uh-huh. But uh, that's how I got involved with it. What led me up to doing prison ministry is uh, I gave my life to Christ in 2003 when I, I was in prison myself. Oh, okay. And um, I was at the uh, Walker cell unit in Breckenridge, Texas. Okay. I, um, I'll just give the quick, you know, version of my story. If I speak in churches or anything, it usually takes 45 minutes or an hour. So I'll just do the little elevator talk uh-huh. here. But uh, I'm from Amarillo. My dad was a bar owner. So that's the lifestyle that I was raised in. Uh-huh. And uh, I never knew the Lord, didn't go to church. And, you know, I was taught at a very young age, hanging out in bars, that that was just what life was. Uh-huh. And uh, I got married. I met a girl at 19. She was a bartender from my dad. And we dated for a couple of years and wound up getting married. And um, in 1998, while I was at work, a uh, man broke into my house and he tried to tried to rape my wife and she fought him. So uh, he, he beat her real bad. And then he tried to rape her again and she still tried to get away from him. And he, uh, he picked up my belt off the ground and he choked her to death. Wow. And then he raped her after she was dead and he burned my house down. And I didn't know the Lord then. Mm-hmm. And what I did know was alcohol and drugs. So after something like this happened to my family, I, uh, I really poured into that. I, I self-medicated, mm-hmm. you know, anything I could do to take the pain away. Yeah. And the sad thing about that, it's only momentarily, you know, you sober up or you come down or whatever, and that hurts still there. Yeah. What, but that's what I was doing. Yeah, what's like? What's it like? What's going through? I mean, you were in this case, you're the victim, or, or yeah, you're one of the victims. Like, what goes through your mind? How, what's someone thinking like when they when something like that happens to them? Well, um, the day that it happened, they and, and like I said, when I speak to the churches, I get a whole lot more detail. But they arrested me mm. under suspicion of murder because I guess the husband or boyfriend is always the first suspect. So uh when I get to my house, the firemen are still putting out the house and they're arresting me for murder. And they take me and put me in the, you know, two way mirror room at the police station Uh downtown and handcuff me to the chair and come in there telling me that we know you did this and 
screaming and yelling at me, getting in my face. And so, I mean, you couldn't imagine what's going through my head. It's just, it's brutal and it's terrible. But then my boss showed up from work and he had security video with a timestamp. So they, they had to let me go. I mean, they, they showed that I didn't do this. So they just released me. And that's when I started really self that that day right then I started self-medicating. I just started trying to cover up my pain and it took them, I think about a month and a half to catch this guy that did this. Mm -hmm. And the whole time that they were searching for him, I was just totally out of control. I got to uh, the way that this affected me. I started having nightmares and I mean, these were brutal, brutal nightmares. And when the truth came out, my nightmares weren't even close to the reality of what happened. But the things that I was dreaming up in my head, it was affecting me to the point that I was suicidal and I was just self-medicating. You know, CPS took my daughter because the judge looked at me and said, you can't raise a kid right now. And uh, so I, I lost everything. And when the self-medication wasn't enough, I started using drugs when I started having those nightmares. And um, my my ingenious way of thinking with the lifestyle that I'd led up to that point was if I don't go to sleep, I don't have nightmares. So I started oh. using a bunch of methamphetamine. Uh -huh. And then uh, about a month and a half later, they caught this guy that did it. And in his confession, he um, he said that he was a 19-year-old kid. And he, he was in a youth detention center in Florida and for armed robbery. And when he turned eight, 19 or 18 they let him out and i'm sure he was still on probation or parole but he just you know walked through that and said i'm gonna hitchhike to california so he left florida to hitchhike to california and picked my house in amarillo texas mm. you know i i don't know what the odds of that are but i'm sure it's really really high yeah. but uh, anyways in his confession he said that he was going to break in to steal food and he knocked on the door and she didn't answer so um he went around to the back and broke out the window and she was in the shower. That's why she didn't answer. I'm sure if she would answer the door, he would have just yeah, said, somewhere else. you know, hey, is John here? And she just said, you got the wrong house. And he would have went somewhere else. But he thought the house was empty, so he broke in. And uh, that's when he saw her showering. And uh, I guess he decided he wanted to try to rape her. And things just got out of hand, and he killed her. But now they caught him, and they have him at the Potter County Jail. And this is how mentally this messed me up, and especially the fact that I've been drinking way too much and using drugs and I wasn't thinking straight that, um, I thought in my mind, the only way that I could get on with my life, the only way that I could stand up for my wife's honor is for you to pay with your life. You killed her. I'm going to kill you. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a violent person, but mm -hmm. everybody's got a point that they can get pushed past. And I think when you kill my wife and rape her after she's dead, that's my point. Yeah. So that's not, and especially being high, mm -hmm. being on drugs, I, I wasn't thinking right, and I got so vengeful and so angry that I got myself thrown in jail on purpose with the intention to revenge. Oh, uh -huh. And thank thank God I didn't pull it off, or I would still be yeah. in jail. Yeah. But um, I really believe the officers figured out who I was. Uh -huh. You know, they probably put two and two together with newspaper articles and everything going on. And uh, I got kicked out of jail. You know, they said <laughs> you can't be in the same facility as this man. So, uh, so they they made me leave jail, and then uh. He went to court and he got the death penalty for what he did. And I thought that would make me feel better, but it didn't change a thing. It didn't, didn't bring her back. It didn't take my pain away. It didn't take my need for addiction away. So nothing changed. And, yeah. uh, 
How was I, I, this, how was your daughter dealing with it at that time, and how old was she? At that time, she was nine years old. The uh, CPS took her and put her in a foster home because I was just out of control. So uh, we went to court to try to get her back, and that's when a, a judge looked at me and said, you know, you're not in any shape to raise a child right now. Mm-hmm. And what I heard was that I'm worthless to be a father, so that just fueled my addiction even more. Yeah. Cause I'm sitting there thinking, you know, if I get my daughter back, I may be able to straighten up, uh-huh. but this judge just told me I'm not worthy. And that's totally not what the judge said, but that's what I heard in my head. Uh-huh. And, um, so I, I just turned my back on my family to self-medicate with, with drugs and alcohol. But my mother stepped up to the plate and the judge let my mother adopt her. Mm-hmm. So, so she didn't fall into the system, yeah. but, uh, you know, my, my daughter became my sister at that point, which uh, <laughs> I can laugh about it now, but, uh, you know, back then when it happened, it was, it was pretty hard to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. So then, but then uh, you got kicked I, out, I of, out of the, jail and I, I did, I got kicked out of jail. Then I went, he went to court and got the death penalty and I went to court and I got four years deferred probation and I tried to straighten up for quite a while. And, uh, I really, I, I love riding Harleys. I've always rode Harleys. And uh, so I thought, man, I'm just going to pour into my motorcycle. I'm going to rebuild bikes. I'm going to do all this stuff to keep my mind off the thing instead of self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. And then uh, somebody stole my Harley. <laughs> I was like, you got to be kidding me. Can't win for losing. So, uh, can't win for losing. I just went off. I went and, uh, went and started getting high again. And then I picked up uh, another drug charge. And it revoked my probation. And they put me in prison. Okay. And um, And I'll tell you what. There's so many people that tried to lead me to Christ. That um, when I was in the world, that tried to help me. They they saw what I'd been through, and they tried to reach out to me, and they tried to minister to me. But I had so much anger and hatred in my heart. And the guy that did this, he's on death row, so I, I can't take my anger out on him. <laughs> so the only one left for me to take my anger out is to uh, God. Yeah. And so these people would come to me and try to minister to me. And you know, one guy said, "You know, man, God's there when you need him." And I said, you know what, where was your God when my wife was getting raped and murdered? I said, she needed him. I don't need your God. I don't have anything for your God. And that's that's how I treated people that tried to minister to me because of my anger. And now I go to prison. And the, uh, the prison that I go to, it's a safe P unit. It's a substance abuse felony punishment facility. And when you're there, you have to write an autobiography about your life. So mm-hmm. you can turn it into the counselors and they know how to, they oh, can make a uh-huh. you know, recovery program for you. They evaluate you off of your biography. So um, when I got there, I wrote this biography and um, this is my first day in prison and I'm mad and I'm not in a good place. I don't have my, you know, self-medication anymore. My nightmares are back. I'm just not in a good place. So I wrote this biography and, uh, I went into detail what he did to her. I, I'm not going to tell your audience what he did. It's it's just sickening and heartbreaking what he did to her, and I'm not going to get into that. But I got into it into that uh, in that uh, biography, and uh, I actually finished this. How this how out of control I was. I uh, finished this biography with the state of Texas sentenced him to death, and I wrote five minutes later I'll be dead too, so I can follow him to hell and spend my eternity <laughs> killing him. And I was 
<laughs> I, I was betting on papers what I was doing. Right. I, you, the more I the more I wrote, the matter I got. got uh-huh. And I just I just got out of hand with my writing, and I turned that in to a counselor. And the next day, the very next morning, this is my first day in prison. They came up and yelled, "You know, Buchanan to the picket." So I go out there, and there's five officers, and they handcuff me. They put the leather belt on with the handcuffs <laughs> through the ring and the uh-huh. chains and shackles. And, I mean, I'm just shackled up from head to toe. And they take me to the sergeant, and I'm asking them, why are y'all doing this? And they says, you know, they're like, we don't know. But we were just told to come get you. So um, they take me to the sergeant's office, and she's got that biography. Mm-hmm. And the sergeant in prison says, uh, first thing she said, she goes, is everything you wrote true? And I said, yes, ma'am, it is. And she said, we're a little concerned you may be a threat to the other inmates. And I said, if he was in here, I'd be a big threat to him. But I'm not a threat to anybody else. These guys are just doing their time just like I am. So eventually she took my chains off. But the the Safe P program, the way it works, you get, like, I got sentenced to 10 years on my uh, possession charge. So what you do, you go through this one-year Safe P program, and if you successfully complete it, then you get out of prison and do the remainder of your sentence on probation. Mm-hmm. That, that's the way that that works. And if you mess up at any time, you get yeah. your original sentence. Uh-huh. So it's kind of a second-chance program. Yeah. But uh, you have to go through AA and NA and cognitive rethinking <laughs> and counselors and all this stuff. And I told the sergeant, I said, I can't do this. I said, I'm not going to stand up in front of a group of strangers and talk about my dead wife getting raped. I said, I'm not going to do it. I said, put me in regular prison. I mean, and she said, let's talk to the psychologist. So they sent me into the psychologist and um, I told him my story and what's going on. And um, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, you can't do this program. I said, no, sir, I can't. He goes, I'll tell you what I'm going to do then. I'm going to sign this piece of paper. And they're going to come arrest you in prison and take you back to county jail. And as soon as the bed comes open at Monford, it's in Lubbock. It's a psychiatric unit. They're going to take you and put you in the psychiatric ward and you'll do your whole 10 year sentence or you can toughen up and do this one year program. So when you get faced with an option <laughs> like that, you're not quite as crazy as you think you are. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I, I'm like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll do this program. So uh, I went back in there and I told the sergeant, said, I'll do this program. And she said, uh, okay, I want you to go see the unit chaplain. And, um, you know, there's so many people that tried to help me and I treated them so poorly. But now I'm in prison and a sergeant is telling me I have to go see the chaplain. So I can't throw my little temper tantrum like Mm -hmm. I have been for the past year in the world. I have to do what I'm told. So I go in there to this unit chaplain and he says, what can I do for you? And I, I just looked at the ground and I started telling him my story. And it was it was brutal. Every third word started with F. I wasn't saved. I was, mm-hmm. it, was it was just ugly. And uh, I'll tell you what, I, I never cried. My wife got murdered. All this stuff I've been through in my life, I never shed a tear. I would bottle it up. And that's why I probably fell into addiction. Instead of grieving in a healthy way, I bottled it up and tried to cover it. So I never shed a tear over my wife getting murdered. I, I punched a bunch of walls. I knocked the window out of my truck. I just bottled up my anger. But here I am telling my story to this chaplain, and I look up, and he's crying. And I never shed a tear, and it's like this man was taking my pain for me. And he asked me, all he did, he looked at me and said, can I pray for you? 
And I looked him dead in the eye and I said, thanks for listening to me, but I don't have anything for your blanking God. Mm-hmm. That's what I told this guy. And I got up and I walked out of his office. And the next day in prison, it's called a lay-in. It's like a hall pass. They hand them out in the morning, tell you where to go. Uh-huh. I get a lay-in and it says report to the chaplain's office. So I, I have to go. And he's in there talking <laughs> about grace and mercy and free will and can I pray for you? I said, don't waste your breath. Just leave me alone. And I left, lay in. Next day, go to the chaplain's <laughs> office. This this man called for me every day. You know, when I looked in the mirror, I saw a hate-filled, angry, drug addict, alcoholic, bad dad. I mean, you name it. It's mm-hmm. what I saw looking back at me. And this chaplain saw Christ in me, and he did not give up until he drew that out. And I started finally going back, and I started listening to this guy. And I thought, you know, I can't live this way anymore. Mm-hmm. My whole life has been just totally out of control. And uh, I gave my life to Christ. And I had to walk through a bunch of things with forgiveness, with my father, with the, a car wreck I was in. I didn't even tell you all about that for sake of time. But I had to walk through forgiveness with all these things. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I, he said, you have to forgive yourself. And I, I said, I can't do it. And uh, I, it was another inmate that helped me with that because this inmate is walking with the Lord. He goes, uh, you can't forgive yourself. I said, man, I've just caused too much pain. You know, I chose drugs over my daughter whenever she and her mom got murdered. And instead of being there for her, I chose drugs and my selfishness. How can I forgive myself? And he goes, well, look at that guy. You believe he's forgiven? Like, well, if he repents and changes his <laughs> life, sure he is. Well, you believe that guy's forgiven? Well, yeah, if he repents. And he goes, but you can't forgive yourself. I said, man, I'm I've caused too much pain. And this guy looks at me and he goes, so basically what you're doing, you're standing at the foot of the cross, looking up at Jesus Christ saying, you did enough for that guy and you did enough for that guy, but you didn't do enough for me. You know, you didn't do enough for me to forgive myself. You didn't do enough for me to believe your word. So uh, why don't you get a hammer and pull a couple of nails out and go do a couple more miracles. So I'll have enough faith to believe and I thought, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, if you're struggling with forgiving yourself, think about that while you're laying in bed tonight. Mm-hmm. But uh, I did. I forgave myself. And when I did, that's when I realized I can be a father again. I can be a husband again. I can be all the things that Satan took away from me. And mm-hmm. it all starts with forgiving myself because I can't walk in God's blessing if I'm still holding on to resentment and anger towards myself. Mm-hmm. So then uh, I go back to the chaplain, and he says, uh, you know, that's great. You forgave yourself, but there's one more. And I said, who's that? And he said, you got to forgive the man that murdered your wife. And I'd only been saved for about five minutes, and I didn't even <laughs> know any better. But uh, I looked at this chaplain, and I said, Jesus wouldn't even forgive him. Uh-huh. And I, I said that, and I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, But I still had anger and resentment when I got out of prison towards him. And I started going to Trinity Fellowship in Amarillo, and I started counseling pastors there. And eventually I said, you know, they're right. I've got to let this go. And I finally realized that forgiveness isn't, doesn't mean that it's okay what you did. Forgiveness means I'm not going to hold on to this anger anymore that's keeping me separated from God. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move on with my life instead of being bitter all the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I forgave that man and I started praying for him. And it really, it really changed my life. I got out and I started working for the church. I mean, mm-hmm. Here I was raising bars and felony <laughs> drug charges, and now I'm working for the church, running their outreach center, helping people. Mm-hmm. I started going on mission trips to Haiti after the earthquake, and you know I went to Louisiana after Katrina and helped rebuild there. And I started helping other people 
instead of just being so wrapped up in myself. Mm-hmm. And it really changed my outlook on everything. And then uh, I'm at work one day and I get a phone call and it's from the state of Texas. And they said they're fixing to execute the man that murdered my wife and asked if I wanted to come to the execution. And uh, that really opened up a whole other can of worms for me. Mm-hmm. You know, if, I, if I'm truly walking with the Lord, is it all right for me to condone the state of Texas killing somebody? And I did a lot of praying about it and a lot of soul searching. And uh, I decided to go to this execution, but I decided to go with a heart of forgiveness, not a heart of vengeance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had pastors praying for this guy. I had my small groups, my church group praying for this guy. And uh, I went to his execution and um, they opened up that curtain and, you know, he can see me and I can see him. And he's laying there on that bed with his arms out with the leather straps and the IVs in his arms. And um, he won't look at me. I know he can see me out of the corner of his eye, but he won't look look at me. And he had a warden at his head and a chaplain at his feet, and the chaplain was praying. And the warden asked him if he had a last final statement, and he said, yes, sir, I do. So the warden told him to go ahead, and he prayed, and he thanked God for saving him. And he admitted what he did, and he said, I know you all probably have bitterness and hatred for what I did, but there's not a day that goes by that I haven't prayed for you and your family that was left, left Mm -hmm. behind. And then he turned his head and he looked me dead in the eye and he said, can you forgive me? And all I could do was nod my head, but I nodded my head. Yes. And then Mm -hmm. he looked up and said, I'm ready. And I watched that man go to heaven. And I know in the depths of my heart that I will spend eternity with the man that raped and murdered my wife because of his repentance and my forgiveness. And the repentance of my own sins. I mean, I was a drug addict, alcoholic, been in prison, all that. So, uh, and I turned that all around. And then, you know what? God's just blessed my life. I've got remarried. I have a great wife. You know, my Harley got stolen. I got a bigger, <laughs> better Harley now. <laughs> you know, God's giving back everything that was taken from me. And now that I have the opportunity for this to be my full time job, my full time ministry, to be able to step into the prisons and help people change their lives, just like God changed my life in that prison. I can go in there and speak hope to to those men. And, you know, everybody always asks me, how can you relive that story again and again? And I tell those inmates or anybody that asks me that, I don't focus on the bad. Mm -hmm. I focus on the healing. So, you know what? If I sit here and played the victim for the rest of my life, she would have died in vain. Mm-hmm. But I'm not playing the victim anymore. Through Jesus Christ, I'm playing the survivor, and I can take her life. And she didn't die in vain. She just showed up every time I stepped foot into that prison mm-hmm. and speaks life into hundreds of people. You know, John Sage says the same thing. His sister shows up, and now there's 46,000 graduates because of her death. Mm-hmm. I mean, he took that pain and turned it into an empire of healing. Yeah. And it's all through the all through Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And you started to say earlier in our visit, uh, you're saying like the you're talking about the recidivism rate, or how many how many go back into prison? What's that like? Well, you know, the recidivism rate nationally it's pretty high. It's almost you know forty eight fifty percent. So and you let a hundred guys out of prison, half of them are going to go back. And is that in within Texas, three years? Is that what I've is that yeah, what I've heard the measurement yeah, the is? Yeah, the recidivism rate is three years. If you make it past three years, they don't count you in that rate and just go back to prison. Okay. But, um, so in Texas, it's nationally, higher? it's almost, yeah, well, nationally, it's almost, no, Texas is lower. Um, oh, good. 
nationally it's about 50 percent but i believe texas is lower because we'll keep you in prison a lot longer no it's it's not an open door you know like there's a lot of states that they'll let you out in a heartbeat and you turn around and go back Mm -hmm. you know in in other states you get two years in texas you get 10 but there's also the and this is kind of a new model since the i don't know mid to late 90s that texas started doing restorative justice Instead of punitive justice, you know, punitive justice was, hey, let's lock these guys up and let them do their time. Mm-hmm. And what happened then? We used to have more violence in the in the prison systems. You know, you come out a bigger, stronger, better criminal than when you went in because nobody helps you change. Uh-huh. But in the late 90s, it started taking a shift more towards restorative. So now there's a, you know, there's a lot of college programs. There's a lot of on-the-job training. There's Bridges to Life. There's Kairos. There's Mm-hmm. Less for authentic manhood. There, there's all these programs now that are helping these people so they can change their lives when they get out. But the recidivism rate for those reasons in Texas is lower. I think it sits at about 22, 24%. Okay. But uh, Baylor University has, what's that? So that's good or at least better. Yeah. Well, Baylor University has tracked, uh, I think, six or seven, maybe 7,500. I, I can look it up on our website, but. I think about 7,500 Bridges to Life graduates and recidiv- and we didn't handpick any of them. It's mm-hmm. just, they, they just tracked these guys that got out that graduated our program and the recidivism rate for them is I think 13%. Wow. So this program changes lives. And the fact that Texas is picking up more restorative justice, it's, it's making a big difference in recidivism rates and, you know, people's lives not coming back to prison. So yeah. it's what, an amazing thing. What about the other side of it? You talked about you guys do things for the victims of violent crimes as well. What do you, how do you, how do you help them? How do you minister to them? Well, that's a, it's a lot smaller thing. We, we don't really have a program set up for them, but um, we use them as speakers mm-hmm. in our program. You know, we have the victims come in and we have two, three, five, and seven. Uh-huh. And I have had so many victims that have came and gave their testimonies in the prison that said, I've been to secular counseling. I've been to Christian counseling. I, I've done all this stuff trying to make it better. But to go in and share my story with nobody trying to fix me mm-hmm. with my story, fixing people has mm-hmm. brought me more help than anything that I've ever done. Yeah. I could see that. You see some purpose in it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we've had, I think, over six or 700 victim speakers across the state. Uh So it does. And and every one of them said that it's just dramatically changed their lives. Yeah. That's an an amazing story. Kind of a couple follow-up questions. If somebody is listening to this and they're like me and they've never done prison ministry and the idea freaks them out a little bit, what what would you say to him to unfreak him out, or what would you say to me to unfreak me out? I would say I've been doing this uh, Bridges to Life for seven years now, and probably about five or six years in other ministries in the prison, and I have never one time had a problem. You know, and we'll run anywhere from forty to a hundred inmates at a time. Mm-hmm. With the so say we have seventy inmates, then for every two. For every ten inmates, we have two volunteers. So okay. if there's seventy, if there's seventy inmates, we have fourteen volunteers in there. And I will be absolutely honest with you: when you start getting in those small groups and you start building trust with these men and becoming friends with these men, 
Mm-hmm. If anything ever happened, if one guy got out of line, there's 70 men that would stand up for you and put a stop to it. And that has never been an issue uh-huh. at all. I, but, I, I have never seen any problems happen in the prison. And, uh-huh. and, you know, focusing on the fear of it, I think robs you of the blessing that God would give you in it. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. But that's what also about, a, another like one of those. The, uh-huh. Go ahead. Like in the training, they're also talking about, like, don't give out any personal information. Yeah. And two-part question of one, of, of how can you minister to people without doing that? And then two is like, well, what about all the, is there a danger then in them, you know, tracking you down when they get out or, you know, sending one of their buddies or like all the, all the different scenarios I can spin in my mind. Well, I've got 12 years of doing this and nobody's tracked me down yet, but uh, I have run into numerous you know, people that went through the program just out in the grocery stores or at the mm-hmm. movie theater. And you would be amazed that whenever some guy comes up and gives you a big hug, you're saying, do you remember me? And, you know, I've, I've graduated thousands uh-huh. of people through this program, so there's no way. I And especially I when they get out and now they have hair and <laughs> three-world clothes. And, uh-huh. and But, you know, as soon as somebody does that, I know where they're coming from. I'm like, well, what unit were you on? Oh, I was at the Jordan unit. Man, it changed my life. Uh-huh. So to be able to have these people coming up saying that what you did by coming into that prison absolutely changed my life. And mm-hmm. they're, I got a job now. I got married. I got my kid. Whatever they're, they're going to say. Mm-hmm. And you sit there and think, man, just because I went out there and poured a little bit of time into this person, now the rest of their life is going to be blessed. And this family, these kids got their father mm-hmm. back and this mm-hmm. wife got their husband back all because uh, God used me for a few hours to go minister to this guy. That's pretty awesome. It's just, yeah, it's amazing. What about, I don't think we have enough time to really flesh this out, but when guys get out of prison, what do they need then? Are there good programs to help them get jobs? Or like if you're, if we're a church and we want to do something, how do we, how do we help? You know, absolutely. There is, there's a, you know, the Bridges Life program. We, we don't do any of that. We, uh, we focus on changing lives on the inside, mm-hmm. but there are numerous programs on the outside that they'll help you find, find housing. They'll help you find jobs. They'll, uh, as a matter of fact, if you go on Bridges Life website, there's a, there's a link that, you know, that shows you a bunch of different programs in Texas that you can get involved with okay. after you get out. Uh-huh. And if somebody listening to this, they want to get involved uh, with Bridges to Life, what are their, or just involved in prison ministry, but, you know, specifically yours, uh, how can they, how can they get in touch? What are the things they can do? Well, I am in, I'm in the Texas Panhandle. So, you know, my region runs through Dalhart, Dumas, uh, Tulia, all, all the towns right around Amarillo, you know, toward Plainview and Lubbock. Mm-hmm. But we're spread across the state. So if, if you go to bridgestolife.org, Mm-hmm. then uh, they'll have a map on there with the different regions and say if you live in the Dallas area or mm-hmm. whatever area then you know you can uh, you can find the staff member that's over that region and it has their email and phone number and all that stuff and you can reach out to us that way and we can get you plugged in now uh, as far as the other states that do it I don't really I don't really know how that works but mm-hmm. if you called our our home office. I'm sure the office they lady would there do. could. Uh, uh-huh. They would. They would know more about that. Mm-hmm. And you know, like, like I said, ten different states have picked up on our program. So if you're in a state that doesn't have it, and you know, God puts it on your heart, you could hook up with our uh, executive director or chief operating officer, and they could uh, 
you know, walk you through and getting this program going in your state. Yeah, that could be pretty awesome. What about, are yeah. you guys, I'm assuming you guys are donation supported or is there, do you get any funding from? We we are, we're 100% donation. You know, we get a, we get some grants from uh, different supporters and, you know, individuals, churches support us. We uh, we don't take any government finance, and we we wouldn't take it if they offered it to us, because uh-huh. then they could uh, they tell us what we strings. can and can't talk about, and uh-huh. we're we're going to share the gospel. Uh-huh. So uh, yeah, to run this whole program, it, it all comes off of uh-huh. you know grants and, and and donations from individuals and churches, and yeah, absolutely. So that that's all on our website. If anybody anybody yeah, wants I to would. donate to us, all that info's there. I would encourage them to, you know, right before Christmas, I was reading in Luke, uh, I think it's chapter 12, but it's where uh, Jesus is telling the story about this rich man that had a great crop, tear down his barns, build bigger barns, you know, and and the end of it, it Jesus says, this is how it's going to be with anybody who is uh, not rich towards God. And uh, at the time, I really felt like God was challenging me, you know, like, you need to invest more in the kingdom of God, like make an investment. And I would say, um, if you're listening out there, I would say this is a great opportunity but beyond, you know, sometimes we want to pull out our pocketbook and assage all our, all our, well, I did my thing. And other times we say, well, I'll pray for them. And praying for them is really great. But I also think there's really something to be said for looking to jump in and be involved and uh, get your feet wet. And that's, I'm hoping, I'm hoping this will continue to let me do something like this. You know, to God be the glory, whatever he does. Attack, I, I really appreciate you spending some time uh, with us and sharing with the audience your story. That's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, I, it, I was emotional listening to it, but it's also an amazing story of what God has worked in your life and a, and a testimony Absolutely. to his goodness and his grace. Absolutely. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I really, really appreciate the chance to do this. Okay. Well, I appreciate you and God bless you and God bless you in your work. Okay, well, God bless you. Thank you.